With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Powered by Clear Vision Development Group, this is Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast. Each week, we'll provide you with top business insights, fresh perspectives from world-class guests, and the tools you need to lead better than before. And now, here's your host, author and business coach, Tony Richards. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the program where we have Dr. Oz as our unauthenticated, unofficial, and unauthorized team doctor. Today on the program, my guest is Jennifer Thornton, and this month we're talking about performance. So Jennifer is one of the world's foremost coaches on talent and performance and why you can't throw payroll at your problems and how to avoid falling off the talent cliff. I will also be showcasing role clarity and leveraging it for elite performance in our leadership and business lesson a little later on in the program. It's all coming up today on the Better Than Before podcast, sponsored by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. Because adventure still needs chasing, we gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards? Maybe you're highly accomplished, but you just can't seem to break through and make the next big move. Or you run a business that has begun to grow stagnant. It doesn't have to stay that way. Even the best leaders have felt as if their careers were spiraling out of control. But that's when they had to lead and lead big. Tony Richards' new book, The Big Idea, 52 Ways to Be a Better Leader Now, will help launch you forward in leadership. Learn how to take charge and lead yourself, lead others, and lead your company. Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com. everyone and welcome back to better than before my guest today is jennifer thornton and i have been wanting to have jennifer on the show for quite some time Uh, she has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership professional development over 20 plus years as an hr professional she's led international teams across greater china mexico the uk and the united states to expand into new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships, all while exceeding business objectives and financial results. 
The rapid growth of her consulting firm, 304 Coaching, has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and accelerated hiring patterns. She is a sought-after business strategist specializing in startups and large value-based organizations, and she assists her clients in building talent strategies that complement their business strategies to ensure exponential growth. She lives in Texas with her family and her rescue dogs. We we were talking a little bit before we went on the air. Of course, uh, everyone knows what a dog person I am, and uh, both of mine are rescues also. In her free time, she enjoys reading, historic preservation, remodeling her lake home, and spending time with her best buddies. And so, Jennifer Thornton, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a fun show. Yeah, tell me, what part of Texas do you live in? I am in Dallas, Big D, and I live actually in Dallas. <laughs> so you're in the metro. Yeah. Okay, good. I I um, have some friends down there. One, a peer uh, colleague that I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, and then also a, a girl that I grew up with in Kentucky who now lives in the suburb towns around Dallas. I, I can't remember exactly the exact name of the town she lives in, but anyway, um, you guys went through some rough stuff here just a little bit ago. We did. Um, yeah, power and water became a luxury for about a week, which was really tough on um, those. I, I learned that I was not meant to be a pioneer. I oh. was born in the right time. Oh, my gosh. I was, I'm too soft to be without water and, and electricity. Yeah, he said his family, uh, they were all sort of huddling around the uh, fireplace, uh, wood-burning fireplace at night, uh, and they only had a few cans of soup and crackers that's going to last them for several days, and it just sounded horrible. So I'm glad you guys are, are kind of past that now. Yeah, me too. You know, once it was over, we went back to your typical Texas winter. It was 70 degrees, sunny and beautiful. It was like it never happened. Yeah, it only happens to you guys once in a blue moon. So that's that's a good thing. It was eight below zero here Woo. with a wind chill of about 20 below for, I don't know, a couple of days. But, you know, we, we get those about every other winter or something like that. And they only last a little while. So uh, tell me a little bit about what was it that really got your attention to move from being a corporate type executive to moving into private practice and helping people with these things? So I think, you know, for so many of us, it's a journey and, you know, there's a lot of pieces that kind of start to, you know, click in together. And then there's that moment where you're like, oh, I'm done. Like I have to do something different. And, you know, the last several years of my career, I had the most incredible job. I headed up an international HR department. I had teams all over the world. It looked incredible on social media. It was very glamorous. Um, and it was a ton of fun. And I, it changed, it changed who I was. I mean, in a very positive way, I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about how to really connect with people and lead with people. And, you know, as HR executive, it was always a goal of mine to help executive teams come together in a productive and useful way to, to ensure that the teams are able to deliver on the results. But when you work internationally, it's hard enough to get a bunch of executives on the same page, but you add in time zones and culture and language and wow, it gets really challenging. Mm -hmm. And I really started to see the impacts of um, when there's just not executive alignment and it's really dangerous for an organization. And 
at that time period, I also kind of started doing my own um, kind of self-discovery about, you know, why I had certain beliefs or thoughts and, you know, it was a perfect storm. I was starting to learn about the neuroscience of the brain and how that impacts leadership. I was seeing all this stuff going on and I got to a moment where it's just what I wanted to do all day, every day was to help people really start to understand the positive impacts of leadership and helping people recognize how we've always led was breaking 2020 broke it. And going forward, we're going to have to lead in a way that wasn't built for the industrial revolution. It was built for today's times. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of what inspired me and what I get to do today, every day. Boy, the, um, you're speaking my language. Uh, we could take any one of those things you just talked about and spend the rest of our time together. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of try to stay on track here. You're getting me excited. <laughs> I have a tendency to meander around. But let's talk about something you call, it's your term, you call the talent cliff. So um, I assume you can fall off of that thing, right? So. Yeah. Well, you, your business can fall off. And what happens is really your, your business, your sales fall off of it. And so, you know, I, I always watch startups and it's very interesting to watch startups, whether you're in an established um, organization or truly a, an independent startup. And in the beginning, the people who create it, their skill set is, you know, more advanced than their business results, because that's what creates the conception, right? I have all these ideas, I'm starting to get it off the ground. And so what happens so often is those leaders chase the business. So, you know, increase in revenue, increase in production, increase of services, whatever that is, and they start chasing that. And you should, but on top of that, you have to think about what's my talent strategy that makes my business strategy successful. And so often we don't do that. We don't think about developing our teams like we develop our product. And so the product continues to do well and all of a sudden it takes off and it takes off and, and is outperforming the skill set of the team. So what happens then is your um, executives, you know, fear sets in, struggles with talent. Um, we start getting highly directive because we're, you know, in fear of our results. We're mad about someone's performance. And then instead of leading in a way that helps people grow, we actually lead in a way that deteriorates their success. Our best people are not going to put up with that. They're going to start to leave. You get left with a, yeah, the people are going, yes, you know, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and aren't really pushing you as a thought leader in the organization. And so your talent then starts to deteriorate incredibly quickly and you kind of go off that cliff. And now all of a sudden, if you don't have the talent and it's gone off the cliff, then your sales are right behind it. Oh, yeah. And we see it happen one too many times in fast growing organizations. Well, you add in uh, complications too of acquisitions. And then you uh, do M&A and, uh, you know, uh, as you said, perhaps depending on the geography, maybe you've got some of the other things you mentioned, like cultures and language and some other stuff. It just gets uh, uh, bigger than we can balance all at the same time. It does. And it amazes me, you know, you'll talk to someone and they're going in to talk to some investors about investing millions of dollars in their organization. And man, they have everything you can think of figured out, right? They got it all on paper. But if you stop and say, well, how are you going to figure out the people to make that happen? They're like, huh? 
Like it's like this, this whole other piece that most people leave out of their business strategy is how are we going to make sure that the, the people we hire or who we're going to hire can handle the business we're going to create. So when you're developing a talent strategy and I'm sure every business is unique and, and customized, but there has to be probably a few keys that you, you, uh, apply every time. Right. I mean, can you share some of those? Yeah, I think that one of the things that's important, no matter where you are in business, whether you're a startup, an established organization, um, one of the biggest pieces of it is teaching um, and educating executives on how to create a culture where innovation is king. And people will say, you know, you can innovate here, you can share your ideas, you can do all of that. But what they don't do is they don't create an environment where failure is celebrated. And you cannot innovate if failure is not celebrated. Mm -hmm. And so too often executives want perfection and perfect perfection is, you know, it stalls out. It's a roadblock to innovation. And so that's one of the biggest pieces is how have we created a culture of innovation and acceptance and celebration of fear. Yeah, because peer, uh, people just get afraid to take chances, right? Or do new things or try new ideas or even present ideas sometimes um, because they're afraid of perhaps the backlash. Now, <clears throat> one of you have a whole complement of things that are my favorites that you say, but one of my favorite sayings that you have is um, – throwing payroll at your problems. And so tell me what you mean by that. Oh my gosh, I love that. And yes, I'm throwing payroll at the problems. We all do it. So that is when you get to that crisis mode and your team's overwhelmed and no one, you know, you're thinking, well, I'll just go hire someone and they'll fix it all. Or my team's overworked. I'll just hire one more person for that team. But we have to stop and ask ourselves, why is the team failing? Why is the team struggling? Why are they overwhelmed? Is it truly work or have we not provide, provided the right resources, the right education, you know, the right situation? Um, you know, we've, have we created a world where perfectionism is the only way to survive? So people are frozen in fear. And so when you go to hire someone, before you hire them, look at what you already have and how can you um, invest in the current team. Cause oftentimes if you're going to say, I don't know, hire someone, you're going to spend $70,000 on payroll. What if you put $70,000 into the organization around education or technology or reorganizing or taking out work that doesn't matter? I call that vanity work. Mm. We ask people to do work that doesn't impact the business all day, every day, because we think it's nice or we like it, or it's just the way we like to see it done. And it really has no impact. And you start removing that, you may find that those payroll dollars could be better invested inside your organization. Um, and then sometimes you may discover, you know what, I do need to hire someone. But don't always guess that hiring someone else on the team will fix the problems you currently have. Boy, I hope uh, I know there are a lot of executives that are listening to our show today, and I hope they're taking your words to heart because you just laid out a strategy there for making all their dollars more effective. Uh, so I want to get to the neuroscience. You, you got me all excited with neuro, mentioning neuroscience earlier. So and and. All of you out there, get your ears kind of stretched out and get ready to listen because 
several of us, even though I'm not sure exactly what this is, Jennifer's going to clarify it for us. Uh, so get your ears ready. But what is the addiction to being right? Ooh, one of my favorite things to talk about. So what is so interesting about our brain? It's all based on just, you know, chemicals doing their thing and it's all unconscious. And what we know about an addiction is when you get your addiction of choice, whether that's shopping or um, a substance or um, gosh, what else? Anything else? Sugar. That's a, that's a popular one. When we receive it, we have a dopamine hit and the dopamine hit feels good. Now it doesn't last that long, but it feels good at the time. What is interesting about the human brain is when we are right, we get the exact same dopamine hit as we would in other feel good situations. And, you know, what we know about addiction is the more you get it, the bigger it has to be the next time. Mm -hmm. And so if you are right and it feels good, and for whatever reason, that's kind of something you enjoy. And then, you know, say you're a fast climber in your career and you're right a lot and you're just climbing that ladder and you are right, right. And more right. By the time you get pretty far in your career, there's a good chance you could be addiction addicted to that. And I think we all know those people that we worked with early in our career that were collaborative and open-minded, and you could have like really incredible sessions and talk to them and think through things. And now it's think the way they think, or there's a problem. They will fight you over the color of a crayon just to be right. And you give in and you go, yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. And when that addiction takes on, just like any addiction, it's damaging to everyone around you. And it is incredibly damaging to organizations when you have an executive that is addicted to being right and is no longer willing to hear the truth. Yeah. Um, I have heard addicts say, uh, that over time, what ends up happening is that initial feeling that you used to get from the addiction, you start chasing it. Mm -hmm. Uh, you start doing it more and more trying to get that just one little bit of a feeling that you used to get from an easy cut uh, first couple of times, right? It's on a gambling. Uh, I've heard gamblers say that, that, you know, you, you got in there and it seemed easy at first. And then over time they lost a lot of money because they were chasing that feeling of winning and hitting the, hitting the jackpot when, you know, at first it, it really wasn't as a big a deal, but then over time the hunger got really, really strong. And I can see where that would be very debilitating for a leader. Well, and you look at history, one of the examples I always love to talk about is Kodak, you know, Kodak was an incredibly strong organization and they had the first digital camera in the seventies and, you know, the, um, inventor of it, you know, David Sasso, I think is how you pronounce it. He went in and said, look what I figured out. And the executives were like, that's ridiculous. No one's going to want to buy something where you can only see your pictures on a TV. Because mm -hmm. at the time, that's you know, the technology they had. You would show it on the TV. They thought that's just a horrible idea. And then the marketing department said, well, we could probably figure out how to sell it, but it hurt our film cells. So we don't want to hurt our film cells. And so they got the patent for it, which was smart because then here came those digital cameras and they held the patent until 2012. And then the patent ran out. So therefore their royalties ran out and they filed bankruptcy. Oh my. And what if those executives could have said, I don't get this. I don't understand your idea, but change my mind. Yeah. 
tell me why you think this is a fantastic idea and let's see what we can do with it. Who knows what the world would look like, but you know, it's just such a easy way to look at someone in your team and say, I don't think your idea is right. Never knowing what that really could mean for your organization. Yeah. Let's let somebody build a case for it and see if they can vet it out. And I mean, what is that? Where's the harm in that? Really? There, there isn't any, unless you have a fear of being wrong. And I'll tell you, as an executive coach, I have caught myself red handed at what I call the advice trap. Uh, when actually my client really just wanted me to listen. Uh, but I was trying to solve their problem for them too quickly by just giving them an answer, uh, when I just need to just, just, just listen. Um, so let's talk about power plays and how those, uh, for lack of a better term, play into, uh, how teams function and work. So what have you seen, uh, around power plays? I think when I think about the power play in the executive circle, one of the things I so commonly see is that, you know, you get the, you know, now in the world, a virtual boardroom and everyone's around the virtual table and every executive that's leading their department shows up with their own agenda because they're trying to protect themselves. They're trying to protect their team. They're trying to protect what they think is right. And if they could stop and pause and say, none of my needs and my team matter other than the objectives of the organization and stay really focused on what the organization needs so that then they take that and make it come to life within their group or their department. But too often we're so protective over ourselves that when we get around the table and say something's gone wrong, it's all finger pointing, mm -hmm. you know, that person and this person and all of this. And it's like, who can we stomp on the hardest so that we look just okay? Like if I can make you look worse, I'm pretty darn good. Blame storming. Yeah, I love that term. That's a great term that you used. And, and the reason why is because they are not interested in the success of the organization. They're interested in the success of them and their team. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things um, when you put a group of executives together is they have to, under no circumstance, be there for the good of the organization and not for the good of their own team. And that's kind of counterintuitive. We've been told, protect your people, protect that, do this. But no, you have to protect the organization first. Yeah, it's almost like we get the mentality we're on survivor, you know, and <laughs> yes. we don't want to be voted off the island or we want our team to be the lone uh, one that emerges from this. You know, I've, I've been traveling this week uh, to other parts of Missouri. I had at least uh, two executive teams that I work with this week. And in both of those situations, the conversations we had uh, started revolving around trust. And of course, trust is the foundation of every relationship, especially when you get to the level of an, of an executive team. But I was driving home last night here to Columbia and I was thinking, I'm talking to Jennifer tomorrow and I'm going to ask her about trust because these conversations were really interesting and I wanted to get your trust take, so to speak. Ah, uh, trust. It's like this, um, this, you know, invisible thing that we're all trying to, to, um, get in our hand. Yes. So, you know, when you think about trust, it's, it's, you know, the guarantee that someone's going to do what they say they're going to do. It's the guarantee that someone's going to be respectful to you and all of those things. Or maybe that you just have my back. 
Yeah. Or have my back. Exactly. And I think that trust is really hard because of the way our brains are built. You know, our brain has one job and that's to keep us alive. And it does that through fear. And so when someone says something that seems very benign, like, I don't think your idea is going to work, then your brain kicks off some chemicals and says, oh, I guess my ideas don't work here. I'm not good enough to be here. And your brain starts telling you these stories. And then all of you are sudden like, well, how dare they tell me I'm not good enough, right? Now, all of a sudden, you think they've said it when that's not true. You created it in your own head. Mm-hmm. And that's why as leaders, we have to be really conscious of our words because our words create worlds like the world we live in. And they also create the stories that someone creates in their head towards you, towards a company, towards a team, towards themselves. Um, And trust is really rooted in not only action, but really also very heavily rooted in language. And um, our language is incredibly important. Absolutely. I mean, perception is reality to a person. Whether or not it's the actual reality is really, sometimes it's not even, uh, doesn't even play into it because that person has bought into that narrative in their self-talk so to such degree, it's, it's real to them, right? Yeah. And our brain does that, um, to process information. That's just how it works. You know, it's this file sort delete kind of keep in the back folder mentality. And it's interesting because we make up stories when we don't know the truth all the time in our head. I'm always like, if you're going to make up a story where you do not know the truth, at least make up a good story that will serve you that you can believe. Like what if you thought, you know what, they were in a bad mood today. And so they just weren't open to hearing my idea, but it's really still a really great idea. When the time's right, I'm going to reapproach it. Okay. That's a much better story than my store. My ideas are horrible. I guess I can't work here. Wait a minute. They don't like my ideas. Like just create one that's much better if you're going to create something. Yeah. And they start generalizing it too. It starts out that way. And then it goes, well, no one likes my ideas, right? Yeah. uh, Mm -hmm. Just really debilitating. Well, yeah. what, what should I have asked you about today? What, what's, what's on the table that I haven't brought up that you think would be important for our audience to know? I think what's important for our audience to know today is what are the competencies of future leaders and how is that different than yesterday? Great. Tell us about it. So I think that, you know, when we look at competencies that we've all been told were right over the last few decades, they're not really working anymore. Um, I think that the competencies of our future strong leaders, I think number one, strong leaders will be able to lead teams in which they don't know how to do their job because the, you know, there used to be a world where we would like level up, right? You were, you did this and then you got promoted. Then you did more of that. Then you got promoted. You did more of that. Then you got promoted and you supervised people who did what you did. Well, the work, work changes so fast now whatever work you did 10 years ago, your team is doing something completely different and getting it done today. And so Mm. you don't understand it. And so I think leading teams in a productive way where you don't know how to do their job is going to be incredibly important for our future leaders. I also think that decision agility is going to be important. And that's not like I'm going to have plan ABC because you create plan ABC with information you have in front of you. But the world moves so fast, you have to be able to make a decision with as much information as you have at the time 
and be open to new information coming at you that will change your mind or change the direction. And because if you hold on to decisions too tightly in a world that changes as fast as ours, your decisions might not work um, and you'll hold on to them. Boy, I love it. That's fantastic advice and wonderful for every one of our listeners to grab hold of today. Jennifer Thornton is our special guest today. Her consulting firm is uh, 304 Coaching, and uh, she works with companies on the things that we've been talking about today, how to how to not fall off the talent cliff, how to make sure you invest your dollars more wisely as far as developing your people, and how to scale your business in a smart way where your talent and performance is concerned. Now, Jennifer, um, I've got a list of questions that I ask every guest who comes on the show, so I want to run these by you here in our last little bit of time together. Would that be all right? That'd be great. I can't right. wait. Okay, are you ready? I think so. Here we go. What's the best memory that immediately comes to mind for you? Uh, a sunny day on the lake with friends and family. And which lake is that now? Because you're in Dallas, so... Yeah, it's always been Lake Texoma, but we are in the process of moving to Austin, so it will be Lake Travis. Oh, all right. Great. Who's the number one hero in your life? Oh, my great-grandmother. What was her name? Helen Maxwell. And what made her a hero for you? She had her master's degree in education in the 18th century. That is awesome. Or the 1800s, I guess, actually. In the 1800s, and she um, was a feisty thing. Um, you know, and I think she was probably born way before her time, but she definitely started this, um, culture of the women in our family being, um, independent and strong and having a voice. And, um, it all came from her. She might've told Stephen F. Austin how the cow ate the cabbage. You never know. <laughs> she would have taught set, told anyone how to do that. <laughs> she was no joke. <laughs> what is the uh, top value you subscribe to? Humanity. Who is the most important person in your life? Well, obviously my spouse, we're supposed to say that, right? But I think that not only is he one of the most important, but really the five people I spend the most time to, I do subscribe to, you're an average of the people you spend the most time to, so, or spend the most time with. And so I think all of them are incredibly important. What's your favorite thing in the whole world? Words. I love to read. I love to have great conversations. So words. What's your favorite food? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, chocolate, Indian food, pizza. <laughs> <laughs> it rotates. Um, what's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I, you know, it might not be like beautiful, like you might think beautiful, but one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had was in Xi'an, China at the Terracotta Warriors. That was beautiful. Oh, yeah. If you could describe success in one word, what would the word be? Mm, shared. How do you want to be remembered? Um, that I gave more than I got. If you could go back and talk to a young Jennifer, what would the, be the advice for her? Oh, this one's so easy. I remember, like, I just look back at myself and think, why? It would be, um, stop trying to be a perfectionist that you're holding yourself back and you're, you're using perfectionism to cover up your fear. Success, not perfection, right? What is your favorite sound? Um, laughing with my friends. I like it. And of all the lessons you've learned, what is the best lesson? 
Oh, that's so hard. Um, I think the best lesson I have learned is to tell the truth sooner. I like it. So Jennifer Thornton's been our special guest today. Jennifer, tell everybody how to find out more about you and 304 Coaching. So you can check us out at 304coaching.com, but we can also continue the conversation on LinkedIn and you can find me at Jen Thornton, ACC. Well, listen, thanks for, again, thanks for providing time for me today. And I feel like we could have gone on and on. So uh, we'll have to come back sometime. I would love to. That would be fantastic. Jennifer Thornton, everybody. I will have a business and leadership lesson next on Better Than Before. Because adventure still needs chasing, we gave the newly redesigned 2021 Subaru Crosstrek a more powerful engine. Plus, standard symmetrical all-wheel drive. And Subaru is the most trusted brand for six years running, according to Kelly Blue Book. Love. It's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details. Receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards, delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday Morning Coaching Memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com. Welcome back to Better Than Before. I want to talk to you today about role clarity and leveraging it for elite performance. What are all the roles you live and perform? I've often said that your life is a movie and you're the star playing the lead role. While you're the most important role player in your life, you often have other lead roles to play and various supporting roles also. I've known people who've identified up to eight different roles or more that they have to juggle and separate. They have to engage mentally in the moment between being a mother, a wife, a support person, a coach, a salesperson, so on and so forth. Part of the evolution into becoming an elite level performer is the ability to really take note and be able to shift into and out of the various roles that we have accountabilities in. For those who often struggle with performance and life in general, there's often difficulties not only in clearly defining the various roles, but also because there's a lack of clarity. And there's a lack of engagement because of that lack of clarity. This can entail such examples as not mentally finishing one job in one role before trying to get into another job in another role and never quite doing any of it fully and entirely at a high level. Nothing really ever gets finished, leaving a lot of unresolved loops open in our thinking. This is mentally exhausting and also pretty frustrating, which often leads to fatigue and stress, and especially in this COVID-12 months that we've been experiencing, many people really struggle both consciously and subconsciously with unfinished tasks, projects, and all of that takes a huge toll on us. There's a lot of stress with that. You get very fatigued with it. Role conflicts can be solved by people on the fly if they have clarity and equal love and passion. Let's say you've got deep passion and love for your husband and your career equally. 
it's just hypothetical. Okay, don't don't go overboard here. This is just hypothetical here, so let's not go overboard. But when you're a wife and you work for a corporation, and when everything is normal, uh, and there's no emergency, when there's no conflict about which takes precedence, everything is is fine. When the corporation has an emergency and your husband is normal, then your career job in the corporation is going to take precedence. You might not make it home each night at regular time. You might not make dinner or you might not uh, be able to get to everything. So you have to skip time that is normally allotted to your family as a wife and a mother. If the corporation is normal and your husband has an emergency, your husband then takes precedence. You might not get to work at your usual time, or you might not work at all for a day or, or more. Uh, your attention span while you're there may be waning and somewhere else. See, the big conflict comes when there's an emergency at the corporation and with your husband. When you have two emergencies going on, your husband should take precedence, but that, that's not an automatic choice, right? Which creates the conflict. As different as it may sound, there may not be clarity on the roles which can cause some decision-making like this to become shaky. Now, remember, in the scenario I just laid out, the passion and the love for each one is equal. That's not often the case. The biases for these things can be slightly different to vastly different, which also enters into the total equation. We're also doing these things at the speed of thinking, which is pretty speedy. Often we take action or make decisions without really thinking it through. We take action, as is often described, on instinct. We'll satisfy our hunger and passion in various ways, but it's always based on the value amount we place on the role we're playing. Some performers love the job role they're performing, so their value level for that role is high and judgment is low. Others hate their job role, so judgment is high and value for the role is low. Think about your various roles. Think about the roles you could be playing. You might be playing the role of husband or wife or spouse or mother or father or parent, son, daughter, brother, sister. You could be a friend. You could be anywhere from a best friend to a casual friend. You could be playing a role in a career or a job. You could be performing as a peer, a colleague, a teammate. You could be performing as a supervisor, a leader, a boss. Consider the value uh, or love, whichever word you want to use, the value or the love you place on each role and or the judgment you have for it, which is the disdain, dislike, or the hate. We have masks that we wear. We have behaviors we adapt and modify for each one of those roles as well. If those get stretched too far, or if we don't process events happening around us properly, or if we don't get enough water or we don't eat right, this can all lead to stress and fatigue also. I use very sensitive tools to help evaluate and discover clarity in all these roles and all these situations, and it's one of the most powerful ways that I help individuals get to the elite performance level. Here's some other questions that might be helpful for you to think about. How do social surroundings affect the role you're playing? What role does personal power and control play in each role you have to conduct in your life and into the lives of others? What are some of the roles you play in your life and what are some of the behaviors that are present each time you play one of those roles? Do you take time to shift gears between each role 
and adjust your mindset and mood before entering the next role? In other words, when you're shifting from career person at your organization into husband or wife or mother or father, do you take a little time to shift gears moving into that other role or is it just one big blur that you're doing all these things? How much time do you think you should take to make an adaptation, an adjustment, uh, or a shift? These are all things you need to think about that I think could possibly add to your satisfaction and reduce some of your fatigue and frustration. Well, that's our show today. Better Than Before is sponsored by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and at ClearVisionDEV. Come on over and join our Facebook pages. They're absolutely free. ClearVision Development Group. Or you can uh, join my personal Facebook page, Tony Richards Speaker, Author, Coach. On behalf of our associate producer, Whitney Coker, and chief producer, William Foster, I'm Tony Richards reminding you all the time and every day that everything gets better when you get better. Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.